Matthew chapter 6. We're going to think tonight about the Lord's Prayer, the, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. So, we're going to read uh, this account of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 from verse 5, page 970 of the Pew Bibles. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us His Word this evening. Well, as I said, we're going to start this evening to look at the Lord's Prayer, to do that in some detail. And, and I wonder what it is that comes into your mind whenever you pray. What is it that, that you think of? What thoughts fill your head? Every prayer is different, of course. There are going to be different circumstances that, that bring uh, different thoughts to you. But you might be, for example, conscious of the greatness of your need, that you, you, you might come because you've, you've found yourself in some particularly intractable situation, and, and that's all that you can think of as you, as you come to, to pray. Some of the Psalms start like that. It might be that, that what's in your head is not quite so, so healthy as that. It might be that you come with a sense of guilt. Maybe, for example, you've not prayed for a while, and you come thinking, how will God receive me, seeing as I haven't bothered Him too much recently? Or it might be that you come with doubts. Lord, I'm not really sure if you're listening or not, that sort of thought. What is in our heads as we come to pray is desperately important because it will shape what direction our prayers take and will help us know whether we pray earnestly or not. Well, this evening, what we, we want to see is that as you begin to pray, I think we can say from the Scriptures that God wants you to think of Him and the incredible standing that you have been given as His child. He wants you to be reminded of what He is like and who He has made you in order that you might come and pray with confidence. That's, I hope, what we're going to see tonight. 
we're thinking these evenings about prayer, as you know. We said last time that we've been given, this was two weeks ago, we've been given a great resource and privilege in the gift of prayer. We've got to think how amazing it is that, that God, that God should invite us to call upon Him. And yet we acknowledge that we often don't use that gift or, or draw on that gift as we ought to. And I'm sure that that strikes a chord with all of us. We wish we could pray better. We'd love to have a sort of a one-on-one -on -one class with Jesus, as it were, and ask Him, Lord, will you, will you really help me? We know that you prayed amazingly when you were here on earth. We would really love you to teach us to pray. And the great thing is that we don't have to guess how Jesus would answer that question. Because in Luke's gospel, we didn't read Luke's gospel tonight, we read it two weeks ago, but in Luke's gospel, that's exactly what happens. That's the setting of the Lord's Prayer in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 11. So those two places that the Lord's Prayer comes are Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. And in Luke's gospel, what happens is that Jesus has been praying by Himself. He returns, or the disciples find Him, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus gives them the example of the Lord's Prayer. So, you remember that we, we pointed out that the Lord Jesus doesn't uh, make it difficult for them whenever they ask that question. He wants to help them to pray better. This is a request that He's really keen to answer for them. And so, if we come to the Lord, as we are, I'm sure, tonight in some senses, if we come and we say, Lord, we want to pray better, teach us to pray, we're pushing on an open door, and part of what the answer that Jesus would give us whenever we make that request is, look at the Lord's Prayer. And so that's what we're going to do tonight and over uh, some subsequent evenings. We're going to look at that in some detail. Now, this prayer has been incredibly important in the history of the church. We have it here uh, on the screen. It's going to come up. There it is. Uh, <clears throat> it's been incredibly important in the history of the church. Some people have suggested that these are the most recited words in history. I, I don't know if that's true. I'm not sure there's any way to measure that, but I cannot think of what would be recited more often than the Lord's Prayer. It's been traditional to divide it up in the following way. Here we go. Some little numbers come down the side. There we are. There's a preface, Our Father which art in heaven. Then there are what we call six petitions, and then there's a conclusion. You'll notice the conclusion is actually not in a Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer. And if you remember, that if any of you learned the catechism as a child, you'll remember that, that that's what the, the catechism does. The last 10 questions of the shorter catechism are about prayer, and largely they go through the Lord's Prayer and tell us succinctly what each of these parts mean. So that's how we're going to break it up as we look at it. It's actually been very common throughout Christian history to reflect on the Lord's Prayer in this sort of way and to see it as a model for prayer. So the Heidelberg Catechism does that, the Shorter Catechism does that, the Longer Catechism also. Calvin and his institutes takes a big section of teaching on prayer and largely bases it on the Lord's Prayer. And in doing that, those who have gone before us have recognized that this is not just, not just a prayer to pray off the shelf, as it were, but it is a pattern for prayer. It's a skeleton for prayer. As if Jesus is saying, here are the things that are to dominate your prayers. Here are the, the, the headings, the subheadings into which you should fit your prayers. So, this is not 
always to be seen as the completed article. <clears throat> this is underlined in, in that Luke's version and Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer are not exactly the same. Luke's version is shortened. And I think that that implies that, that, that it was indeed a pattern for prayer rather than a, a standard prayer that was to be recited in an unadulterated form. Luther, however, Luther said that the Lord's Prayer was the, the greatest martyr on earth. That's what he called it, because he said <clears throat> everyone tortured and abused it because they repeated it in a ritualistic way without thinking about it. And I'm sure you remember my, one of my experiences was in school assembly, it was saying the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not sure that I ever really thought about it very, very much. And yet, while we understand the, the dangers of just repeating something without thinking about it, there's also something very precious about repeating something and having it go down into our hearts to a level that we perhaps do not fully recognize. I'm always struck whenever <clears throat> I visit some of our older members in the later years of their lives, and sometimes we know that, that mentally they are not as sharp as they were and perhaps cannot remember lots and lots of things. And yet if I read the Lord's Prayer or read the 23rd Psalm, almost invariably I'll find they join in because those things have gone down deep into their hearts and souls in a way that is very, very helpful and in a way that, that, that actually shapes our thinking about God, our approach to God, and our practice of prayer. So, so it's not just saying, well, the Lord's Prayer is, was never really meant to be recited, or it's not just saying it was never really meant to be uh, expanded. It's, it's not either or. It's a bit of both and, I think. So the preface is what we're going to look at tonight, Our Father in Heaven, or Our Father who art in Heaven. And we're just going to look tonight very simply at each of these words in turn. Are. Oh, you are. My shortest ever point, <clears throat> or at least my shortest ever title. Um, now, at first glass, glance, that, that would hardly seem worth pausing at, but it's actually very, very significant. You might never have thought of it before, but all the personal, all the, the, the references, all the personal references in the Lord's Prayer are plural. They're not I and me and my. They are our and us. So you see, this is a prayer that reminds us that as we have come to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, we have inevitably been joined to His body, to the church. We've come into His family. We have Him as our Savior and elder brother, but we have brothers and sisters too. And our praying is to reflect that. Whenever we see prayer in the Bible, generally, we, we find people praying together in groups, and we find them praying individually. Both are described. We pray by ourselves, and we pray with others, and we ought not to neglect either. That's part of the reason that during this month of March, we've been really focusing on that evening, six o'clock prayer meeting, just to, to remind ourselves it's a good thing, it's a right thing that we would gather together to pray, not only in a church service, we do that, of course, but, but also in a time dedicated specifically for intercession. 
and, and both are there, that we do this by ourselves, we do this with, with others. And it would look like the natural setting for this prayer would seem to be with others, our Father after all. But, and we're going to do that at the end of the service. But notice in verse 6, Jesus speaks about praying in private. If you've got a Matthew open, he talks about praying in private. Now, he might have moved on by the time he gets the Lord's Prayer to, to, to have a, a public gathering in mind, but possibly not. Possibly even as he's saying, as you pray by yourself, remember your brothers and sisters. You see, prayer is the cry of the Christian family, the Christian family member. And as such, we've got to keep the family in mind. For you see, as you, as you pray each of these things, your brothers and sisters are included. They have to be. One writer puts it like this, in prayer, I am not alone. I am one with the members of God's family, which is also my family. My weak prayer is caught up into the great stream of prayer that goes up forever from God's family. The strength of prayer is that it is not simply mine, that the moment I fall to my knees, I am no longer an individual man or woman talking to God, but a member of the family of God. Isn't that great? Now, we have been shaped by an incredibly individualistic culture for, for decades. And we think that what really matters is God and me, Jesus and me. But here, Jesus teaches us to think about God and us. And that goes against our grain, but we've got to allow the Bible to recalibrate us. Because it's not, you see, that we get 90% of our Christian experience by ourselves, and then the time with our brothers and sisters sort of tops it off. God intends for us to think of ourselves all of the time as part of a redeemed people, a people for which and with which we pray. And as part of that, there is the individual pursuit of God. So, of course, there's a time for praying for personal and private concerns, but they ought not to dominate. So, Jesus says to us, when you pray, say, our Father. He puts it together with others. One person has written a little poem on this. It's not a great poem, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good theology, I think. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say, I. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say, my. Nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for one another. For when you ask for daily bread, you must include your brother. For others are included in each and every plea. From the beginning to the end of it, it never once says me, our Father. Father, second word. So much that we could say here. What a, an important strand of teaching within the Scriptures. We've become so very familiar with this, no doubt, and we've lost some of the wonder that we should have whenever we use this in prayer. There are all sorts of words used of God in the Scriptures, used to address God in the Scriptures, but this is the word that Jesus most often uses, Father. So, in Gethsemane, whenever He's talking to His, his heavenly Father, He uses that word, Father. When He when he prays with and for his disciples in John 17, he uses the word Father seven, six times. 
And we would understand that, of course. He is, after all, the Son of God. He is praying to His heavenly Father. Of course, He's going to use that term that's going to accurately describe their relationship. But now He says, when His disciples come and say, Lord, how should we pray? He says, here's what you do. You use the word that I use for God, my heavenly Father. Use my word for God, because this is what now describes your relationship with Him, that of children to a father. Now, the word here, the Greek word, is, is pater. It's, it's the word from which we get uh, paternity and so on. And you know that there's another word used of father, uh, which is the Aramaic word in the New Testament, Abba. It's not used so many times, but it's often said to be the word that's like a child's word for father, more like daddy. Now, that can lead to us thinking of God in perhaps a slightly unhelpful way. Because always, whenever the word Abba is used, the word pater, the Greek word, is always added to it. And there is a Greek word for daddy, but it's not used. So, so in other words, I think that the Scriptures are trying to, to, to lead us in a sort of a middle ground here to say, here's a, an incredibly intimate family term, but it's not a casual term. At the same time, it's both intimate and, and reverential. We've got to try and remember that. We're, we're approaching God, our Father, but not our, our pal. I've heard sometimes people say, well, you know, nothing special about Father, is there? After all, everyone's a child of God. As that great theological treatise says, all God's children got a place in the choir. Some sing low and some sing higher. Some sing out loud. Yeah. But that's just a function, isn't it, of, of our diminishing of God, that, that, that those in rebellion against Him should prove to, to, uh, to presume to, to be intimate with Him at that sort of level. There, there's a wide sense in which God is the Father of all that He has made. We are His offspring. Paul says that in Acts chapter 17. But, but this is much more than that. This is talking about the fact that when God takes a person who's a rebel, who's, who's an enemy of God, God takes a person like that and turns them around and, and justifies them he not only then gives them a right standing with him, he also brings them into his family and adopts them as his own children. So John chapter 1, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. What a remarkable thing. God could have said to us, well, you're in the right with me now, and that's it. But He doesn't. He brings us into His family. He adopts us as His children. John is amazed by this in his letter. First John 3, verse 1, he says, How great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He's, he's full of praise. And that means that we are incredibly loved. In fact, and we're going to find this hard, not just to to believe, but to, to believe in practice, to believe functionally, as it were, to believe in our lives and hearts. In fact, we are loved no less than Jesus Himself. We are loved no less than Jesus Himself. Je James Packer 
says that there are some situations in which an adopted child is loved less than a natural child, but not with God. Packer says, as God's adopted children, we are loved no less than the one whom God called His beloved Son. No one has ever loved us like this. All earthly fathers feel in some way some feel terribly, some feel so terribly that the very concept of God as a father is hard for some to think of. But you see, He is the, the perfect father without shadow. And when He makes us His child, His love for us is as full as it is for the Lord Jesus Christ. How incredible. Now, can you see what Jesus is doing? Don't forget what's happening here. The disciples are coming, and they're saying, Lord, we want to pray. We want to pray like you. We see you praying, and we, we just don't even begin to understand what we're doing when we're praying. How do we pray? And Jesus, right at the start of teaching them to pray, says, this is how you're to come to God. You're, you're to use this term that reminds you of what an incredible work He has done in your life. He has changed you from a rebel into a son. And that's who you are, he says. Come to him on that basis. Now you have access. God the, the judge has declared you right, but God the Father has declared you a child. The Heidelberg Catechism answers, asks this question. This is what it says, 120. Why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus our Father? And this is what it says that immediately in the very beginning of our prayer, He might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer, namely, that God has become our Father in Christ. Excite in us. I'm coming as God's child. I, I, I'm, I'm a child of the Father. You see, you're not coming, whenever you pray, you're not coming to one who is distant or disinterested or hostile. You are coming to one who is your Father. May there be within us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God. That's what Jesus was telling us as He says, here's how you pray. Say, our Father. Now, this helps us maybe a little bit with a question that, that, that maybe you've, you've wondered about with the Lord's Prayer. You know how we're supposed to come to God in prayer. We're supposed to, to end our prayers with, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Or, or at least come with that sense of, of, of coming that, that we're, we're praying in Jesus' name. We're not coming in our own merit. We're coming uh, because of Jesus. So, it's our convention to end our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen. Why is that not here? Why, when Jesus was giving us the model prayer, does He not say, oh, and by the way, let's finish it off with, in Jesus' name, amen? Well, simply because it is only through Jesus Christ that this can happen. For rebels, you see, to come and to call God Father, the Lord Jesus has to die. For us to be welcomed as sons, the Son needed to hang on a cross and go to a tomb. Do you know that Jesus refers to, his, to God something like 60 times in the Gospels? In every one of those cases, He uses the word Father, except one. You know where that is? It's when He's on the cross. 
And there he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus says, Father, 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 all the way through his life. And then on the cross, he can't say, Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that so that you can say, our Father. Isn't that amazing? Do you know the, the early church? The early church forbade unbelievers from saying the Lord's Prayer. It was only for Christians. It was for Christian believers who had gone through preparation and so on to become church members. It was for disciples. It was for those who had come to Jesus Christ and therefore become children of God. And, and, and maybe for some of us tonight, as we're going to say it later on, some of us might think, you know what? I'm not there yet. I, I'm not resting on the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I can't call God my Father as we were saying. Do you know what? By the time we pray it in five minutes, you could. You could trust the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. You could come and say, Our Father, trusting that your access to Him is through what Jesus did as He took your sin on the cross. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Our Father. The last thing just is in heaven. Jesus reminds us of our, our, our new status with, with God brought to us through Jesus Christ. And then he reminds us of God's majesty and glory. You see, to, to, to say that God is in heaven is not so much to give us a dress. It's, it's not saying this is where he lives. It's saying this is his status. You see, God is, is everywhere. But, but he, his status is that he is in heaven. He is ruling over all things. He is the God who is who is absolutely in control. And that means that whenever we come to Him, we know that we can get what we need. We know that we're not coming to a God who is limited, but to one who is in heaven. He rules over all things. And so the Heidelberg Catechism says this, and we haven't got this on the screen. It's the next question, one, two, one. Why is it here added, which art in heaven? And the answer is, lest we should form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty, and that we may expect from His almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. Packer deals with this beautifully. Jim Packer, whenever he, he, he says, whenever we're contemplating these things, there are two ways that we can go. God is our Father and He is in heaven. There are two tracks that we can go down, first of all. Either, he says, we can think, first of all, of God's greatness. He is in heaven. He, he dwells in unapproachable light. He, 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 he's, he's unlike anyone else. Incredible power. So you can start off down that road and then remind yourself, and He's my Father. How amazing. He's the one who has loved us and given His Son for us so that we could be part of His family. He's in heaven, and He's our Father. Or, or He says, you can go the other way. You, you can go this way. You can think of God's fatherhood, and you can remind yourself that, that, that God is a Father unlike any other. He's tender and compassionate. He's done everything that is necessary for us to know Him, and He is in heaven. 
He's free from all the limitations of any earthly parent. He is limitless in his care to provide and to watch over. You see, he's our Father, and he's in heaven. And Packer says, let your thoughts move to and fro like an accelerating pendulum taking ever wider swings. He's my Father, and he's God in heaven. He's God in heaven, and he's my Father. It's beyond belief, Packer says, but it's true. So if we're going to come to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, like those disciples, I haven't even started to pray. I, I, I don't really know what I'm doing. Teach me to pray. We're pushing an open door. That's something that God wants to form in us. And Jesus says, as he answers that question, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven. Remind yourself of what he has done for you in changing you from being a rebel to a child. Remember that it comes through Jesus Christ, and the one who loves his son inexpressibly now loves you in the same way too. And he is in heaven, and therefore able for all that you go on to ask him. Our Father in heaven. Well, we're going to pray just now. And what we're going to pray is uh, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. It's going to be on the screen, but we're going to pray a little preface to it. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, again, like, like many of the other old Christian uh, greats, uh, reflected upon the Lord's Prayer. He, he, he was having his hair cut one day. We've told this story before. Peter uh, uh, Beskendorf was his barber, and uh, he was cutting Luther's hair, and he said, how do you pray, Master Luther? And Luther said, I, I'll, I'll put a few things on paper. And he wrote a book. He, he wrote him 40 pages uh, of how to pray. And part of what he did was he encouraged them to reflect upon the Lord's Prayer and to take each of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer and to sort of uh, build them up and, 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 and reflect upon them and chew them over and so on. No, we're not going to do that bit. But, but he gave Peter, his barber, a, a preface that he would pray, that he would say as he introduced the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to pray it now, and then we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. This is Luther's preface from 500 years ago. O Heavenly Father, dear God, I am a poor, unworthy sinner. I do not deserve to raise my eyes or hands towards Thee or to pray. But because Thou hast commanded us all to pray and hast promised to hear us through Thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and You have taught us both how and what to pray, I come to Thee in obedience to Thy Word, trusting in Thy gracious promise. I pray in the name of my Lord Jesus Christ, together with all thy saints and Christians on earth, as he has taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.